Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Deaths from opioid overdoses continue to be a concern. Here in Connecticut, more than 8 out of 10 overdose deaths in 2021 were caused by fentanyl. That's according to the State Department of Public Health. Nationally, the CDC says most cases of fentanyl-related harm, overdose, and death in the U.S. are linked to illegally made fentanyl, often mixed with other drugs, to increase its euphoric effects. Meanwhile, fentanyl has been brought up by politicians in the lead-up to the midterm elections, debating how it's coming into the country. Today, where we live, we're focusing on what's being done in our state to help individuals and families impacted, from treatment options to prevention efforts. Now, has someone you love been impacted by fentanyl? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest has a personal story to share with us. Vita Bargava is a Connecticut resident whose son died of a fentanyl overdose in 2018. She's also a Shatterproof ambassador. Shatterproof is based in Norwalk and is a national nonprofit dedicated to reversing the addiction crisis in the United States. Dita, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. First off, we're so sorry to hear about the loss of your son. I understand his name was Alec. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, Lucy. Alec uh, was a young, vivacious, filled with life, um, jovial, humorous, uh, highly intelligent and sensitive um, young man, uh, child, young man, uh, and then a full-grown adult. And as a teen, Alec suffered from a mild bipolar condition and started self-medicating first with easily available Well, first, actually, uh, he started experimenting with marijuana uh, and then uh, with easily available opioids uh, and then eventually with heroin. And in the end, Lucy Alec wanted nothing more than to live a life of recovery, empowered by the love of his family and friends. Um, But unfortunately, on his 26th birthday, while he was living in a sober home in Canaan, Connecticut, uh, he uh, unwittingly died of fentanyl poisoning. And uh, uh, what's so tragic is that in the end, Alec wanted nothing more than to live a life of sobriety. Uh, and um, he just was not given that chance. Uh, he, he often talked about uh, uh, two voices in his head, one that would say, this, this is the last time I'll ever use and all I'm you know, and, and um, you know, just that one last time and another one that would tell him, don't do this. Um, you know, you've been doing great and let's stay on the on the road to recovery. But it's an insidious disease, addiction disease. And from everything we gather, uh, he it was his birthday. He wanted one last uh, celebration. Um, and he that was the last time he was ever allowed to celebrate at all. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm sorry to hear uh, his story and the impact on you and your family, Dita. 
Can you talk a little bit more about the challenges as Alec uh, was on the path to recovery and, and what you yeah. experienced as a family? Yeah. So during Alec's seven-year struggle with addiction, my husband and I desperately searched for the proper treatment for him. Uh, and Alec would spend months at a time at uh, different treatment centers focused on his recovery. Uh, but often and sadly, there was little to no transition plan offered to him at every release from those, those uh, uh, treatment centers. And, and so without the necessary support, uh, this disease of addiction was overwhelmingly difficult to manage for him, to manage for our family. Um, and the frustrating experience with navigating treatment centers, you know, um, that's what prompted me to do some of the work that I do through, through Shatterproof, because I know so many families have, have are just at a loss as we were. Uh, it was just, uh, it was a gut wrenching thing to watch our son, um, desperately wanting to, um, release himself from this disease and, and live, uh, you know, a normal life. And, um, and we just, uh, we were at our wit's end as to how to provide that care. And, and society is not unfortunately set up for people in recovery, um, to get the support that they need, to get the help that they need. Often, Lucy, we would have to battle with insurance companies. You know, and while we were trying to get approval from insurance, it's a very small timeline that you have when when someone who's suffering from addiction disease is willing to go into treatment because their body just wants the drug so desperately and they're in pain. Um, and so to have to wait for approval from insurance, that that time is could be could actually cost, you know, this person's life because they may just turn to the drugs. And now with the scourge of fentanyl. Uh, like you said, 80% of people who overdosed um, in, in last year in Connecticut uh, was fentanyl-related. You just don't have that. You can't take the risk, and you don't have the time. So it was it was uh, a very very difficult time for all of us. And my biggest fear for so many years, because I was seeing the impact of fentanyl, the scourge of fentanyl in our cities and towns and states across the country. And I knew we were up against this timeline of, you know, when we could get him into the permanent path to recovery and when the fentanyl would ultimately take his life. Adita, you know, I feel like we've been, as a as a country, talking about uh, opioid overdose deaths for some time. And there have been a focus on what you're saying related to what families and individuals go to when they try to connect to treatment, the barriers to getting insurance to pay or even finding a place that has enough beds. What are some of the barriers today that still exist, and why do you think that is? Look, I think those barriers still exist. You know, finding the right place for treatment, even having enough beds. Um, And I think those barriers continue to exist, Lucy, because of the stigma, the stigma of addiction disease, because it is something in in, in the brain it's it's not like a, a leg that's missing. It's not, you know, with cancer patients where often you can see um, that they either have loss of hair or they look sick. It's in the brain. And so because it's not visible um, and and because of the lack of education to our communities that, that um, you know, people think that it's a choice. It's not a choice. It's very much uh, a, a disease of the brain um, and a chemical imbalance. And I think those barriers are why this country 
is not up in arms talking about this all the time. A hundred thousand people died in our country last year, you know, and and they will continue to die. And if you add in, you know, the mental health portion because the the, the mental health disease and addiction disease go hand in hand. If you add in suicide, if you add in health, alcoholism, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are dying every year. Life expectancy has has fallen, I think, for the fifth year in a row, largely because of addiction and mental health disease. This is a long-term societal problem, and we have to speak about it um, in our community, at the state level, at the national level, uh, and and make this the, the priority that it is. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk about the opioid overdose crisis, specifically fentanyl, uh, as we focus on that for today's show. You're hearing with me on Zoom, Dita Bargava, a Connecticut resident whose son died of a fentanyl overdose in 2018. Uh, Coming up, we're going to hear more about her work with Shatterproof. She's an ambassador for this uh, national nonprofit based in Norwalk dedicated to reversing the addiction crisis in the U.S. Uh, but first, I wanted to take a, a call from a listener. Ron's calling in from Lebanon. Uh, Ron, we have a few, a couple of minutes. What did you want to share with us? Yes, my stepson died in 2016, and uh, fentanyl overdose, utterly horrible. We had a meeting with the, uh, the police at Norwich, and... Um, I spoke to him and I told him, I'm an ex-drug addict myself. Um, I told him I could walk out of this building and find fentanyl in 15, 20 minutes. And he assured me that they were uh, building cases. It, it's there. The, the, the drugs are everywhere. It's literally an epidemic. The stuff is so poisonous and it's killing our kids left and right. And... Um, the police, my opinion, they're not doing their job. How is it that I can walk on the street cold and find this stuff? It's their job, their job to make arrests and clean, clean this place up. And they're not doing anything, my opinion. Yeah. Well, Ron, thank you for calling in, and we're sorry to hear about uh, your stepson's uh, passing. Uh, again, uh, you can join us, 888 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Dita, I'm wondering if you could respond to what Ron shared, because you know there's an emphasis on treatment and support for families, but there's also, uh, you know, there are questions about, you know, why uh, this drug is so prevalent, and you know, should there be more enforcement? Why isn't there more enforcement, according to Ron? What's your take? Yeah, Ron, I'm very sorry for your loss, and and similar um, to your loss, my 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 son also, our son died in in living in a sober home in Canaan, Connecticut. Um, and uh, you know, first of all, he should have never been in that sober home. It was meant for people who were sober for uh, over a year, and he was just uh, just three months sober. Um, but again, that was the lack of the transition that, that he had from, from the treatment center he was at. And, and he found his way to, we believe, to, to find heroin, uh, in Hartford. Uh, heroin was laced with fentanyl. Uh, he had, um, Narcan sitting by his bedside in the sober home in his, in his bedroom where there were kids right outside of his room. They had no idea that he was using. Um, and he had Narcan sitting next to him just in case. 
Uh, but of course, nobody knew that he was he was hey, an overdose, so no one had administered the Narcan. Um, the scourge of fentanyl is 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 literally killing our youth uh, across our uh, across our country. Um, it's complicated. Uh, a problem that we have. Uh, many people who end up selling are, are people who suffer from addiction disease themselves. Uh, but we do need a better enforcement. Um, it, it, again, it's complicated because the police are also bound by the laws that are set by the state and by the country. Uh, you know, I know there are organizations out there who are advocating for stricter laws, uh, you know, uh, and, and penalties for drug users drug sorry drug dealers who knowingly traffic uh substances laced with fentanyl um with an admonishment clause for the first offenders for example but if they do it again that that they should have severe penalties i'm in total support and agreement for that but the other side of this equation lucy is that we need to get to the root of the problem which is the demand the demand and now there are a lot of users people who suffer from addiction disease who seek out fentanyl knowing the potential dangers because they are addicted, because nothing else will um, pacify their pain uh, than than highly uh, potent fentanyl that could actually kill them. So the demand is the problem, and that's where we need severe, severe improvement uh, in in, in uh, harm reduction, in helping people um, manage their addiction disease through medically assisted treatment. I've advocated for safe injection facilities. You know, if you look at a country like Portugal, where all of harm reduction it has taken away their heroin crisis, they had a heroin crisis, which was horrible, and they reduced it by 90% in seven years, purely by harm reduction facilities and programs. And that's where we can fight the fentanyl most effectively and impactfully is by reducing and erasing that demand by by having people on 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 medically assisted treatment and having them in safe injection facilities where we can save their life and have the opportunity to educate them. And I really think we need to think about yeah. this. And Dita, I know you've testified in support of safe injection sites. When we think about what those barriers are. To that idea here in our state, and how much stigma affect stigma rather affects uh, that. So uh, again, I think stigma. Unfortunately, you know, the definition of stigma is a mark of disgrace associated with a particular circumstance, equality, or person. So you know, disgracing our people who are suffering from a disease is just. It's a barrier, you know, that needs to be erased because this is pervasive. Um, you know, we, we 1,400 people died, I believe, last year, and that, that number is going to continue to go up over 100,000 in our in our country. This has long-term effects. Uh, my son, our son was was a, a, a hardworking, smart, intelligent man who would have, who gave tremendous um, impact to society. He had to friends. He was, he was going to be a wage earner. He, you know, it, he would have had a family of his own. These people are dying. So what does that to us long-term has big impact. So we need to erase the stigma and get to the uh, root of this disease and help save lives. And the way to do that is to accept us as a disease 
and have these programs that may seem like they are outrageous, but they're not. They're saving lives. And we see this proof of this in, in, in cities and countries outside of the United States that have uh, proven data to show that they, it saves lives and it allows those people to be educated and, and help them um, steer away from seeking out those, those drugs that will kill them on the spot, like fentanyl. I wanted to bring in another uh, perspective uh, with us on Zoom is Dr. Catherine Hawk, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Yale School of Public Health and also the program in addiction medicine. Uh, Kate, welcome to our show. It's good to be here. I wanted you to respond uh, to Dita's story, as well as, you know, a few times now we've heard about addiction as a disease. And I'm wondering if you can explain that more for our listeners when we think about um, the treatment options and uh, the path to recovery, some of the, the big challenges. Sure. So, um, just, I mean, to start with, uh, Dita, I'm so grateful for you sharing your story and your perspectives. I, I think that you've highlighted a lot of really important things that we know about you know, how to treat addiction and, and opioid use disorder, you know, specifically around the support for overdose prevention sites, the availability of harm reduction, and how important it is to, to really grab and capture that, that moment and opportunity if you have someone who is, you know, willing to initiate treatment. Because uh, you're right, they, they, they can be fleeting. And so that is um, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, the medical system is not, doesn't necessarily do a great job of or as good a job as they could. And so I think that has been a lot of, you know, the the source of a lot of our, our work in the emergency department to try to make, um, you know, this, the, to really reinforce this concept is no wrong door to go through to, to get help. Um, and by, by help, I, you know, I mean, a couple of different things. So one, you, you mentioned access to sort of harm reduction, you know, certainly discussions around naloxone and syringe syringe service programs, but also, you know, certainly, you know, access to, to medications that we know work very, very well um, to help reduce uh, opioid and non-opioid associated mortality, viral transmission, um, and that's specifically methadone um, and buprenorphine. Um, you know, and the way that those medicines work, there's a lot of stigma around them. Um, but really, the way that they work is by helping to address, you know, this this changes this change that we see in the brain um, that, that that you sort of asked about, Lucy, because it's, um, you know, there is, you know, there are fundamental changes in the way the reward system works, you know, in the brain with repeated exposure. Um, and what these medicines do is they allow someone to manage their craving and their withdrawal, you know, in a controlled environment. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, they're getting medicines from a pharmacy or from an opioid treatment program um, or from a, you know, a medical provider. Um, and it allows them to manage their withdrawal symptoms. It allows them to manage their craving and allows them to sort of do the work to help improve sort of the other areas of, of their life to help to help move forward. When we talk about medication-assisted treatment, uh, what are some of the challenges when someone is in recovery uh, when you take this particular uh, medication uh, to help them, you know, the side effects? And is there a struggle for some people that because of the side effects, you know, that they have trouble uh, continuing with uh, MAT? So I'll be honest. I, I actually, I think the biggest, you know, the, the, the unequivocal largest barrier uh, to medications for addiction treatment is stigma. You know, I think that there's a lot of, you know, internalized stigma and a lot of shame around having an addiction. You know, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that these medicines can be helpful, you know, and what that they what they do for an individual. You know, it is very much not 
um, you know, exchanging one thing for another is one of the criticisms that you hear. And the reason it's not is because the whole method of how you engage with this medication, how you, you know, take the medicine, how it controls your day-to-day living is, is very, very different. And that's actually the crux of, um, you know, why, um, you know, what addiction is and how it can be so disruptive to your life. Um, you know, otherwise they are, you know, there are, there can be side effects associated with the medications, but in general, they're, they're, they're far less um, than sort of the effects that we see from ongoing drug use. Um, we do know from a barrier standpoint, there are a lot of um, sort of policies and regulations, both on a state and federal level, that really, really restrict um, access, uh, individual access to these medications. And I think that, you know, in 2022, when we are seeing such an incredible number of uh, opioid associated deaths, um, that it's really uh, important to really think about how we can do things like, um, you know, make it easier for um, uh, people to get, you know, their X waiver or to eliminate the X waiver altogether. You know, don't allow, you know, physicians to say, I'm not licensed to do that because I don't practice that kind of medicine. You know, when you have this degree of um, uh, insidious disease, you know, across the country, you know, this is, you know, I I think the idea that, that, you know, it can only be, you know, it's only done in specialized places or people can say, I'm not able to do that or I choose not to do that. I think we really need to to rethink our Mm -hmm. approaches around, you know, who can at least help initiate treatment and link people to treatment and really make it a priority across all, um, you know, general healthcare settings. Isn't there also pushback from communities, Kate, who don't want medication-assisted treatment centers in their neighborhood? I believe uh, there's a community in New Haven that's also opposing a potential MAT center. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think stigma is is, is something that we 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 certainly see a lot of, and some of it is um, you know, a, you know, a lack of sort of education or awareness around, you know, what these, these, these centers or treatments offer. Um, some of it is around sort of how communities are involved as these programs are grown and developed. Um, you know, I think that, you know, it is important to sort of integrate and to think about how, um, you know, how, you know, what services are needed in what communities and how it might impact the community, you know, but, but overall, you know, I think the the fundamental, you know, challenges that there is a lot of um, stigma against people who use drugs. And I think that that is in part, you know, directly related to, to the increase in, in, in deaths um, that we see from fentanyl. We're going to take a quick break. My guests today are Dr. Catherine Hawk, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Yale School of Public Health and the Program in Addiction Medicine. Also with us is Dita Bargava, a Connecticut resident whose son died of a fentanyl overdose. She's an ambassador with the national nonprofit Shatterproof. They'll be joining us again in the second part of our show. And you can join us, too, with your questions, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about opioid overdose death, specifically caused by fentanyl that's mixed with other drugs. My guests on Zoom, Dita Bargava, who's a shatterproof ambassador. This is a nonprofit working uh, to address the addiction crisis in our country. Her son, Alec, died of a fentanyl overdose in 2018. Also with us, Dr. Catherine Hawk, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Yale School of Public Health and the Program in Addiction Medicine. 
uh, Catherine or Kate, rather, uh, senior producers to Dr. Srinivasan spoke with the Department of Health Commissioner, Dr. Manisha Jutani, on the availability of fentanyl lace products and what the state is doing about it. Let's hear a little bit about of that conversation. The lacing of fentanyl of many of the other products that are being used in the market is extremely scary because we know the potency of fentanyl. We know the ability for overdoses to occur. We know that both fentanyl and xylazine are very, very potent drugs that often may be lacing other products. And if we see a particular spike in an area, we send out alerts. We let local areas know about this so that they can be on alert to respond to any specific overdose and potential increase in calls that are coming from a specific area. Uh, So again, uh, Kate, she mentioned xylazine and fentanyl. Uh, When we look at uh, data from the Connecticut Chief Medical Examiner's Office, there were 221 deaths up to August of this year with that uh, drug combination. Uh, In 2020, the number was 141 deaths for the full year. So can you break it down uh, for us further when we we hear xylazine? What is it and the the problem that you and your um, colleagues are seeing in the ER related to fentanyl lace products? Sure. So, um, so xylazine is, it is um, a, a sedative tranquilizer that is used in, you know, in veterinary practice. You know, it is not uh, FDA approved. It's not a medication that's intended for sort of human use or consumption. Um, and then we have certainly seen a huge increase in it, um, as you mentioned, in the Connecticut uh, opioid overdose fatalities. I think starting in 2019, xylazine might have been present in about 5% of them. Uh, in 2020, it was about 10%. And just this past year, it was actually up to 20% um, of opioid-associated fatalities in our state. And so we know that it is very, very prevalent um, in the Connecticut drug supply. Um, and it it is, uh, it is you know, something that, you know, can be intentionally sought out or or in, inadvertently exposed. It's, it's really difficult um, sometimes to, to identify, um, you know, how, you know, which individuals are, you know, selectively trying to, you know, target, you know, which specific um, substances. But the thing that we do know about xylazine is that it can make, um, you know, the, the, certainly the wounds that we see with xylazine from, from associated with injecting are, you know, worse than we have traditionally seen with um, heroin or fentanyl. Uh, we know that it's sort of these complications around, you know, sort of soft skin and soft tissue infections and abscesses. Um, you know, that that is something that is that is that is worse uh, w- with xylazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think the thing that is probably, you know, if you look at sort of if you look at that the overdose death date in Connecticut, I think it it so clearly highlights that, um, you know, this is, you know, this the idea of trying to to regulate and, and control the drug supply is, I mean, this is this is not working. <laughs> You know, I mean, I think that it's, um, you know, it has gotten just more and more dangerous. uh, And, you know, it just highlights how important it is to really focus on, um, you know, offering treatment, offering low barrier treatment, offering harm reduction, um, you know, pulling people into services, um, whether it's their harm reduction oriented or healthcare services. So you can at least form those relationships. You know, if people are not yet ready to stop using drugs, you can form those relationships and at least get them sort of the healthcare. You know, you can start talking about sort of reducing harm, minimizing infections, and things like that. And and Kate, when we talk, you talk about how this is particularly dangerous. This combination, xylazine and fentanyl. 
when we hear about opioid overdoses, uh, so much uh, emphasis on having the availability of Narcan or naloxone. Mm -hmm. But with this combination, does Narcan even work? So, so it's interesting. So it, um, it can, um, you know, it really depends on the degree, you know, which substance is it that's really driving the respiratory depression. And so, you know, certainly would encourage everyone to, to, to access naloxone, to have naloxone sort of available. Um, you know, if you see someone who, you know, is, you know, showing signs of an, of an opioid overdose, you know, either, you know, decreased respirations or, or small pupils or, or not responding, you know, have a very low threshold to, to use, um, uh, administer naloxone and call 911. Um, you know, there are certainly cases where if you have this mixed uh, ingestion that naloxone, you know, will, you know, knock the opioid off of the mu receptor, you know, to a significant enough degree to sort of wake the individual up, you know, but if there's a lot more xylazine, that may not be the case. Um, and so, you know, that's why it's really important to, you know, not just administer naloxone, but also call 911. Um, you know, if you are EMS or, 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 you know, in the healthcare facility to, to make sure that you, you know, administer oxygen and sort of support um, the breathing in it in as much as you're able to. Dita Bargava is still with us again. She's a Connecticut resident uh, with a personal story uh, with her son who passed away from a fentanyl overdose. She's also an ambassador to Shatterproof, which is a national nonprofit based in Norwalk uh, that is working to address uh, this addiction crisis in our country. Dita, when we hear about Narcan, you know, is it as available as it needs to be? What are some barriers that uh, you or others are, are seeing in our state? You know, thanks. Thanks for the question, uh, Lucy. I, I don't think that there could be enough, given the numbers, uh, in 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 how many people are dying in our state and how many people uh, overdose. It's it can't be uh, enough. You know, now I really do think I know um, you will be speaking with uh, Bianca later, but but having Narcan in the schools as part of an education um, is extremely important. I'm sure you know, Kate, that the teenagers, young teenagers are now dying, um, you know, pills that look like candy that are laced. Uh, the, we need the education in, in schools. We need to warn kids. Uh, and uh, part of that education also has to be resiliency building, you know, social emotional learning programs, which I've advocated for for years, that we have uh, mandate uh, K-12 to uh, social emotional life skills programs so that we can arm kids with resiliency so that they don't turn to substances to fill, you know, whatever emotional gap they may be uh, uh, feeling like, like our son did. Um, so I think uh, that combined with um, every school should have an abundance and every community center, boys and girls clubs, you know, that they have an abundance of availability of Narcan and that people are trained. And that was part of uh, what I did, you know, Alec is my guiding light in my journey to help uh, others through creating awareness around mental health and addiction disease. And and um, really that, he, he gave me um, sort of the rallying cry a few weeks before he died. Uh, I was actually running for statewide office and Alec asked, I asked Alec how uh, he would um, like me to talk about his journey, his his illness. And Alec answered my question with his own question, which was, would you be asking me this question if I had cancer? He 
said, he, you know, I have a disease. My friends have died of this disease and more will die. And yet there seems to be a reluctance to help or even talk about this disease because of the stigma. So please go out there and talk about it and and do what you can. And and so that's when I started to organize, you know, as an ambassador to Shatterproof. I went on a tour around Connecticut to create awareness, inviting uh, federal and state legislators, healthcare workers, paramedics, law enforcement, the public, um, and uh, to educate. And a lot of that was training for Narcan use. Um, and so I think I think there can't be enough aid. Uh, this this is only a growing epidemic. It's a pandemic, actually. And and we have to throw everything we can at it. Education is a huge part of this. Uh, again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Catherine Hawk, uh, Kate, you're still with us, and I wanted to, to circle back uh, what to Alex's story, um, Dita mentioning that he was diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder. Data show that bipolar disorder is most likely to co-occur with alcohol or drug misuse. Also, research shows bipolar patients who misuse substances can have an earlier onset of illness. Can you explain that for us? Sure. So I, I think, you know, the way that I think about you know, how many people come to drug use is that it is a form of, of self-medication. And so I think that, um, you know, for people, you know, who have, uh, you know, anxiety, you know, often alcohol or, or things that sort of depress the, the, the system, um, you know, might be at play for people who, um, you know, have, you know, it, it is, you know, often it is a way to sort of try to internally regulate, um uh, the the feelings and experiences that, that that people people are having, and I think a lot of times that's what um, drug and alcohol drug and alcohol use, um, you know, sort of how people people wind up um, using drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, as far as sort of co occurring, um, you know, mental health, we certainly know that it's a problem. We certainly know that um, you know depression can exacerbate you know drug and alcohol use and vice versa. Um, and we certainly know that, you know, for example, if you step back and sort of look at what happened around substance use during the, the, the COVID pandemic, um, you know, there was certainly, you know, tremendously increased, you know, anxiety and um, uncertainty among, you know, the vast majority, you know, of, of the population. You know, there was a lot of socialized isolation and depression, you know, and so I think the way that people interacted with drugs and alcohol changed a lot, um, you know, meaning, you know, there were a lot more there was a lot more increase in use. Um, there were people who, you know, may have have been sort of successfully managing their their substance use before, who who had a return to use or, or increased use. Um, and so, you know, I think those things are, are really um, quite intertwined. Um, when you think about um, opioid use disorder specifically, though, I mean that the data are just very very clear that that medicines, um, you know, is is a step in the pathway and a tool in the toolbox to to help keeping people alive. Um, and so, you know, whether or not, you know, there is co-occurring depression or bipolar or anything along those lines, you know, access to, you know, buprenorphine or methadone, you know, we know sort of unequivocally improves uh, patient outcomes. And Kate, you are, again, I want to reset that you're an associate professor of emergency medicine at the Yale School of Public Health. So when we talk about ERs, especially at Yale, um, you know, the shortage of ER beds, you know, how that affects care for uh, people uh, who are dealing with substance use disorder. And what is Yale doing about it? 
Yeah, so it's, um, you know, this year has been a particularly challenging year, um, you know, from an emergency department standpoint. I mean, boarding is absolutely through the roof. And, um, you know, when you talk about trying to, to make it a good experience for people to access ED care, it is, you know, it is a challenge, not just in our ED or in our state, but really around the country. Um, what I will say is, so um, Gail D'Onofrio, who was our um, chair for many years of our department, uh, published a study in 2015 where she looked at, you know, 30-day treatment engagement uh, for individuals who had untreated opioid disorder who were in the emergency department, you know, and those that were randomized to receive medication and a follow-up appointment uh, were more than twice as likely to be engaged in treatment at 30 days than those who just left with a referral for, for outpatient treatment. And so that, um, you know, and so that's 78%. Uh, of people were engaged at 30 days. They actually started on medicine in the emergency department. And so that has really, really shaped a lot of the implementation work we've done in our emergency department and in emergency departments around the country around, you know, really reinforcing with clinicians um, who are burned out, who are, you know, having a really, um, you know, it is, it is, the ED can be a challenging place to work and a challenging place to be a patient. Um, but, you know, really doing a lot of work with ED clinicians around, you know, who previously thought that they were not able to, to help people who came in in opioid withdrawal or didn't know how to, you know, provide treatment. And, you know, the thing that we are really emphasizing is, you know, sort of acknowledge, you know, the stigma, mm -hmm. uh, acknowledge that, you know, these are people who have by and large had traumatic experiences in the ED before, you know, offer naloxone and offer treatment. Um, you know, and if you do those four things, you know, you know, by and large, we know that, that people do better. We're going to have to leave it there with Dr. Catherine Hawk, again, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Yale School of Public Health and the Program in Addiction Medicine. Thank you for your time on the show today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Adita Bargava is with us, an ambassador with the national nonprofit Shatterproof. Dita, if you can, we'd love for you to stick around for this next segment. After the break, we're going to learn about a partnership to help schools statewide gather and share resources about substance misuse among young people. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The BBC reports that teen overdose deaths have never been higher in the U.S. More than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses last year. They were mostly adults, but the fastest growing group to die of overdoses were teenagers. It was January of this year when a 13-year-old Hartford student overdosed in school after taking fentanyl. What are schools doing to help prevent substance use among youth and connect students with supports? This year's CIRC, the State Education Resource Center, has created a new initiative in partnership with the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. With us to explain on Zoom with us, Bianca Arizari, a consultant with the State Education Resource Center, CIRC, and coordinator of this new school-based center for prevention, education, and advocacy. Bianca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a wonderful opportunity, and I'm happy to be here to talk about the center. So the center is launching. What was the impetus? So we have actually been collaborating with TEMAS for the past four years on work around strengthening substance misuse prevention in schools. And so from that work, we saw the need for the center and to have a centralized space for anything school-based prevention related. Um, and one spot where schools and families and the community that is part of that schools to go to to access information around 
school-based prevention. So we are in the process of, of developing a center to do just that. So when you think about the gaps, uh, we heard from a caller earlier that says, uh, when we're talking specifically about fentanyl, it's everywhere. And we know that young people will experiment. And so when we think about gaps and how to continue to push this mention of um, this uh, importance of prevention, Bianca, you know, how will the center accomplish that? Sure. So thank you for mentioning that because that's really what the center is promoting. We're promoting prevention. There's definitely a need for intervention and treatment, but we're supporting, we're promoting prevention, specifically um, strengthening schools prevention efforts. And so we can do that in a variety of ways. We have a comprehensive social emotional learning library collection that we've been working on and curating for the past four years that has programs and curricula. And what makes it special is authored by psychologists and social workers it's organized by developmental stage, risk and protective factors, setting where you can implement it. And so we've been in the process of collecting all of these programs and curricula and they're available online. And you can also take them out of our library as a way to bring that information into districts so that they have access to it all in one space. And so that is a big part of the center and also bringing what the community agencies have already been doing in prevention, but bringing it into the school setting, which I think is is a gap and can be strengthened. And CERC's ability to do that is strong. We have connections to schools. We've been working with schools for the past 53 years. And so those relationships allow us to have that entry point to bring the resources that we've been developing and curating um, into the schools to build their prevention knowledge and effort. Do all schools want this? Do they understand the necessity of why this is so needed, Bianca? That's a really good question as well. And I think I think you cannot know what if what you want unless you know what prevention is. So bringing the world of prevention into the school is the language is going to be different. So bringing the language around prevention that's already known in the community into the school settings. Once you understand that, you you definitely will know that it is needed. But yes, to answer your question, through our strategic planning, schools are implementing at a faster rate right now, also SEL programs. Ever since the pandemic, they're starting to implement programs at a faster rate, and they are struggling with um, how to integrate that into the all the multiple priorities that they're already working on. You know, they have federal and local mandates that they have to answer to. They have work around all the other efforts that they're doing. So supporting them in that system integration and integrating the programming into their schools is where we come in, is where we're able to to help. And Bianca, I understand uh, you'll be circus sending out a survey to schools to understand you know, where the gaps are, what they need the most? Yes, so we actually are sending out a survey. It's going out to all 169 districts on October 24th, I believe. And that survey is going to be important because it's going to collect information and data on the prevention programs that they're implementing, that Connecticut schools are implementing around mental health, suicide prevention, um, social emotional learning, and the impact of the programs, the priorities and prevention that schools have. So that we're capturing and creating a big picture of what our statewide efforts around prevention look like. So that CERC and the center and DMIS, we can then better assist 
the schools by knowing what that looks like. So that's going to that survey is going to form the inform the foundation for how we resource share, how we outreach in the future, and how we collaborate with districts. You're hearing Bianca Arizari, a consultant with the State Education Resource Center, or CERC, coordinator of this new school-based Center for Prevention, Education, Advocacy. Uh, Bianca, I wanted to play you uh, a clip from a young person in our state, a senior health reporter and producer, Sujata Srinivasan. She covered a recent roundtable with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, and there were kids from a middle school in Hartford. And this is what one student told the audience, the group, about people using drugs in her neighborhood. My grandma calls them zombies. <laughs> like, they're in this world, and then they stop us from doing so much. Because if we go out, and they see us, and they ask us for money, we're like, oh, yeah, we don't have any money. They might get violent. Mm. Could you respond to what we just heard? You know, it's, it's hard to hear when you, you hear children talking about uh, what they fear. Uh, and, you know, that this is around them. You know, we try to protect them, but there are still instances uh, where they are scared and they need answers. And so how would this uh, school-based center help children like this? Well, I think it will help the adults and the community um, and the environment that's having those conversations with those with the students and how to approach the conversation, how old the student is important, the school that the student goes to is important in that conversation, the skills that the adults having with that student is important in that conversation. So that's where we come in to support that skill building. Um, having conversations with youth about their fears and, and, and drugs and all of the, the things we we're talking about today um, is hard and it's not easy and it's not a one blanket approach to um, to what how you will have that conversation with any one student. So that's why it's so important to get to know your students, to understand what environment, the attitudes, values, and beliefs the families have, the environment and the context where the student is um, living and attending school so that you're armed to have those conversations and not just educators, but the families and anyone that's part of that school system. And that's where we can help right. building those skills and um, supporting that and, and navigating those conversations. And Bianca, we just have a couple of minutes left. You know, I started this segment mm -hmm. referencing uh, that tragic story. Many of us remember that 13-year-old Hartford boy who died of an overdose in school. Uh, when that happened, there were a lot of conversations about having Narcan or Naloxone in school nurses' offices. What resources can CERC provide for school districts who may be still weighing that decision? Sure. So again, Narcan is one component of a really complicated um, approach to, to this epidemic. And so there are resources out there for you to um, circ the center is is advocating for prevention, right? So that medical piece, that recovery piece is not where our entrance is going to be, but we do have collaborators under this demon stakeholders that can support with Narcan and training and having that in the school. We're promoting, although that is important, the preventative piece so that we don't have to have or use Narcan. Mm -hmm. You know? uh, thank you, Bianca, for explaining that to us. Uh, Dita Bhargava is still with us. Uh, Dita, uh, when we were having a conversation earlier, a caller uh, called in, was unable to stay on the line. Uh, but I wanted to share this comment with you. Um, the caller said there are recovery programs available 24-7. There are programs to help you get sober. It's not the program's fault if you don't work the program doesn't work. How do you address that? Because that is a sentiment that many people may feel. 
Yeah, listen, it's, it, it is never the fault of the person who suffers from a disease. And a uh, part of what, um, uh, Shatterproof, uh, that, that I'm helping with in the state of Connecticut is to bring a program called Atlas into our state, uh, which would help families navigate, uh, the treatment centers and, and hold treatment centers to a higher standard of care. Uh, and aid families in finding quality care, which we had uh, many challenges with, with ALEC. Um, and, and there needs to be a standard of care as there is for any other disease, as there is for any other hospital. This is very, very I- important. And all of this relates back to what we were talking about earlier, Lucy, which is stigma. Stigma needs to be erased, and that happens through education at every level. Dita, Dita Bar- Bargova, thank you again uh, for coming on the show a Connecticut resident and also ambassador to Shatterproof. We'll send out a link to our listeners uh, on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live, if they want to learn more about Shatterproof. Thank you for coming on and telling us a little bit about your story. Thank you. Bianca Arizari is also here, consultant with the State Education Resource Center, CERC, coordinator of this new school-based center for prevention, education, advocacy. Thank you, Bianca, for your time as well. Thank you so much for this great opportunity. I'm Lucy nall Today's show produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. Special thanks to Katie Talarski and Tess Terrible. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>